This is the Beyond the Studio podcast. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll have honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Art World Conference, a business and financial empowerment conference for artists and arts professionals. As cultural partners, we're bringing you an ongoing series of exclusive interviews with guest speakers, working artists, and business experts. Since this is a podcast hosted by two young adults, there's a possibility of some adult language. If there are sensitive ears around you, be sure to pop in headphones before you start listening. Before we get started, we just want to remind you about the upcoming Art World Conference in Los Angeles on February 15th and 16th. Get your tickets before early bird registration ends and save $50 by January 15th at artworldconference.com. Remember that date, January 15th, because it's also the deadline to apply for CCI's quick grant. California artists can get the full cost of the conference refunded by filling out their quick and easy application at cciarts.org. One more thing we want to share. Our friend and artist accountant Hannah Cole of Sunlight Tax is about to start her 2020 Money Bootcamp program. If you're looking to start off the new year by getting your finances in order, Money Bootcamp is a year of courses, checklists, one-on-one coaching, and accounting designed for creatives. Sign up before January 14th at sunlighttax.com slash moneybootcamp and get $20 off when you use the code BEYONDTHESTUDIO20. And now, on to the episode. Today on Beyond the Studio podcast, we have a really special interview with Amy Whitaker, artist, author, academic. Uh, She's written books, including Art Thinking, given talks, taught, and lectured at numerous places, uh, including NYU. And she brings a really unique perspective to the podcast today as somebody who holds both an MFA and an MBA from Slade School of Fine Art and Yale, respectively. So Amy, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We're really excited to talk with you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really honored. I uh, super admire your work. Thank you so much. We are thrilled to have you here. And we were just chatting before we started recording about some of these topics, but <laughs> to pick up on where we left off. We were, we were chatting about the fact um, that I spilled a full glass of water on my desk. <laughs> After that, (laughs) I've definitely started a podcast with like, and I poured my coffee in my lap. We'll just keep going. So I wanted to initially just address this perceived dichotomy between art and business that some people have. And I wondered just to frame the conversation because so much of your work and thinking is about these topics. If you could share a little bit more about your backstory and what your perspective on these two things are. Sure. So I studied studio art and political science, worked in art museums, went to business school to understand or try to understand why people were paid so little in entry-level museum jobs, and then went on this circuitous path where I got an MFA in painting and did some other work and then started teaching. And for me, I always felt like business was a set of tools and a way of thinking through problems. My aunt used to call it coat hangers for your mental closet. But my same aunt, when I first went, I only have one. She's legendary, Beverly. Um, when I first went to business, oh, yeah, I know. She's amazing. She's, she's, she's in town soon. Um, when Aunt Beverly and I were talking when I first went to business school, she said, I don't understand why you want to go study numbers. 
stories are more important. And she's a retired professor of the performance of literature. And I really honestly thought about this so much since because there's so many things that are quantitative, that are spreadsheets, that are accounting statements, that are actually exercises in storytelling, like to other people and also to yourself Mm. and also about the stories you want to be able to tell about the future. You know, there's so much about anything that's an act of storytelling. And I think for me, I, I have a hard time remembering it viscerally, but I felt like my own story was very, very narratively incoherent for a long time, um, where you know, I would show up at dinner with people I knew who were investment bankers, who to their credit had chosen a restaurant I could afford, but I had blue paint on my fingernails because I was in art school. And um, mm-hmm. this sort of like, you people talked a big game about you know, the MFA is the new MBA. And this is actually in the art thinking book, but like there really was a day in art school where I climbed up the staircase, grand old marble staircase in the building where um, Sir William Ramsey had discovered the noble gases originally before it became the art school. And there was this banana that said in ballpoint pen, please put me in your ass. And I was like, this is just not something that happened in business school. Like business school, they're like, you need to wear a skirt suit for the interview. And then you have to call your brother who works in business. who's like, you can wear a pantsuit. (laughs) It's just really, really different. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe the struggle between the two is how to acknowledge that market structures, even though we get told about them in these stories about profit and growth and self-interest, they're also just structures and they're structures that can support artistic sustainability. So to engage with markets doesn't mean you're a sellout or that you're not community oriented. It means that you're trying to find space to make your work. And sometimes that's very hard because making creative work is an act of investing before you know if you'll create something of value. And so the economic challenges are actually even more severe than they are for some other areas. And so that's kind of how I got started. And now I feel like I get excited about art thinking as a process of not design thinking where it's like optimized to apply art to known business problems, but really owning the space for the messiness of art and the human kind of authenticity of art, but then also looking at business itself as a creative medium, but very rigorously on its own terms and being honest about the things that you don't know or that are unknowable, uh, which is sometimes different from methods people use in, in finance or analysis. Yeah. And I really love this description that you've used of art not being a movement from point A to point B, but that it's inventing point B. And a lot of the metaphors that you've used to describe art and business, like the letter versus the envelope, (laughs) where business is like the envelope around the work. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about your your ideas of art thinking, what that means, and kind of how this is distilled into um, one of the books that you've written. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that that resonates also because just as a person, I'm constantly using metaphors and they are not all gold. So it's nice that they're, <laughs> my own mother will be like, stop. I like the letter envelope. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah the, so the, oh, we love metaphors here. <laughs> all right. I'm never going to off the phone. Yeah. The main idea of art thinking is that if you're making a work of art in any area of life, you are engaged in a process, not of going from a known point A to a known point B, but of inventing point B. And this is based on Martin Heidegger's definition of art in this essay he wrote in the 1940s, that a work of art is something new in the world that changes the world to allow space for itself. 
And what that means is that you're in a whole different world. You're in a point A world when you decide to make things or try things or invest time or money or energy or thought in exploration. And it's only when you get to the world that you have invented by your own labor and trial and error effort that you know if something has value. And sometimes you don't know if it has value for a long time after that. And that's very hard to support economically for the person in the point A world. So the idea of the letter and the envelope is that there are these two parallel domains of creative work. And writing the letter is making the work itself. And designing the envelope is designing the economic structure that can support that work. And that business is the domain, the creative domain of the envelope maker. Mm -hmm. Well, what I appreciate about the way that you talk about both art and business is that you're able to find common ground between these two languages. And like you said, there is a lack of language to be able to talk about the intersection of these two things. And so I'm wondering, uh, because I think a lot of, of our audience too are coming from that artistic perspective and the idea of approaching their work like a business. I think we understand the importance of it, but um, it can feel a little bit foreign or a little bit alienating when it's not as native to their experience or their background. I love the way that you marry those two topics, and I wondered if you could talk more about some of the differences in that language that you see between the way that, you know, generally as as a society we talk about art and business, and then maybe some alternatives that we could use to better integrate the two or ways that you're bridging the divide between these these two languages? Yeah, no, I really appreciate the question. I think that the the way that I always think about the starting point of bridging them is in terms of resources and resourcefulness and what is the organizing question that you want to ask. Like people always talk about, you know, risk of failure, but it, I think there's just a very particular kind of risk of succeeding and then realizing that you didn't ask the question you meant to ask. <laughs> like you could spend your whole career and then be like, oh, I'm a partner in a law firm, but I didn't mean to do that. Or I made this kind of art, but actually I wanted to focus on this other thing. So I think if you you have a sense of kind of what your your lighthouse is, that's part of it. And then just staying in the, the headspace of the resources that you're working with. So I been thinking a lot about barter and trade. And uh, several years ago, I got to work with the artist Caroline Woolard and some other people on trade school, where they set up a school that was run on a barter system. And Caroline has subsequently um, kind of recently published a book she wrote with um, Susan Jehoda called Making and Being. And the whole thing is about that. It's about how to think from the point of view of resources. Like the entire first part of the book is this hyper-transparent list of all the sources of money that went into it. So it's like if they taught a workshop and they got paid a few hundred dollars, it's a list of all of that. Um, And I think that that's really, to me, that's the starting point is resourcefulness. Like, how do I take what I have and do the best with it? And how do I support myself so that I can do this work? I know that sounds really basic, but that's, that's my own starting point. And um, I think when you say the language doesn't really match, I feel that viscerally all the time. I feel that in the world in general, and I also feel it in the art market. Because when people say art market, they usually mean something like, uh, did you see that X painting sold for Y amount of money, which is five times what you think it should sell for. And I I don't know that that's very interesting, what a work sells for at auction. 
relative to the fact that, you know, if you roll back in time, there's an artist somewhere along that chain who was probably making work in obscurity for a decade before they sold it. And then they sold it for some amount of money that's tiny in comparison to what it sold for at auction. And, you know, you're just thinking like there are these different prices that we put on art at different points in time. But there are many forms of value the art has, some of which are priced in and a collector receives the proceeds and some of which are not priced in at all because they're not quantifiable. And I feel like, you know, kind of how do you have a larger conversation about that? And how do you just think about economics as a process of finding communities of support? And I think maybe owning that when you bring art and business together, what you're really talking about is politics. You're talking about what you think the politics of the market are. I mean, that could be anything. So I, I'm a little bit sensitive. Uh, people sometimes think that I'm a rapacious capitalist. I'm like, I'm, I'm not. I understand <laughs> how markets work and I understand how investment works. But fundamentally, I'm trying to design structures that serve artists. And P.S., if I were a capitalist, I'd be a really terrible one. I teach in an art school. <laughs> Getting this pretty wrong. Yeah, so I think that it's really like the tools... The tools are helpful. And the last thing I would say on that is that the tools are helpful, but the tools are also a little bit scary because they look like they are in charge of you and really you are in charge of the tools. You know, so if you make a pro forma income statement or a budget and the numbers don't work, you've made a sketch and then you can go back and adjust the sketch and see if you can move stuff around and then you can make a separate decision about whether you need to abandon the sketch or not. But it's like you're in charge that, you know, just because you engage with business doesn't mean business is in charge. Yeah. And some of these subtle mindset shifts, too, can be so powerful for artists. I think one of the first times that I really heard this idea around our around the skills that we develop in the studio and that are really inherent to the way that a lot of artists approach their studio practice, um, being this resourcefulness, adaptability, um, all of these really transferable skills. Um, I think bringing that outside of you know the realm of the quote unquote studio and applying that to every facet of their life, that for me kind of started with this uh, workshop Artists U that takes place in Baltimore and um, and Philly and Amanda has also gone through this. And so Andrew Simonette puts on these series of workshops and that was the first time that that idea was really presented to me. And I think it's really shaped the way that, you know, I think about my work and even the origins of the podcast. And then there were some uh, practical aspects of taking an audit around your finances, your time management, getting a full picture of all of the different ways that you kind of move and operate um, in the world. And so just those kind of fundamental practices really shaped the way that I, I started to think about how I was going to sustain a, a studio practice. Those ideas can be so powerful for artists just to make that shift and to to see ways that their skills can translate. And I just love this perspective for how it doesn't box artists in either to working solely in the arts, but really sees their potential as change agents in other spheres. And I know that's something you've talked about too. So, you know, we're coming also from the perspective of those artists and, and we talk with a lot of artists, but you've also talked about the ways that you hope that artists are able to better navigate economics, not only for the sake of their own careers, but to have a seat at the table and addressing some of these other larger world issues. Could you talk a little bit about that and sort of how you see the role of, of artists related to this idea of, of art thinking? Yeah, of course. I mean, there are two different and related answers to that. And one is that I think anything is an art project. And some of the art projects of our time are things like climate change, the economy, 
and things that come up in the U.S. presidential mm-hmm. election. The design of economic sustainability for many people, some of whom are artists and some of yeah. whom are not. And I really think that those are such complex interdisciplinary problems that I get really excited about art as a hub for that, that problem solving for bringing people together across fields, which is very different from watching something sell for $100 million Sotheby's. So I see, I see art as this kind of process of inventing the point B world we want to, to live in. And I also see it as collaborative. The piece of the research I do right now that is related to economic sustainability for artists is really how to go from an economic world to a financial world. And what I mean is, so I mentioned the auction story before where something sells for a lot of money and the artist doesn't get it. The most classic version of that story is Robert Rauschenberg sold a piece in 1959 for $900 via Leah Castelli to Robert and Ethel Skull, who sold the work in 1973 for $85,000. And Rauschenberg didn't get any of the increase in value. You know, he represented the U.S. at the Venice Biennale in 1964. He very much contributed via his career to the increase in the price of the work. And he you know, famously showed up at the auction and kind of playfully jostled skull. And that is credited with the instigation of artist resale royalties in California. I mean, and this is the, um, mm. the scheme that exists in Europe and a number of other jurisdictions where artists receive a percentage of the increase in price when their work is sold. The European legislation is designed in this very particular way so that no one ever receives more than 12,500 euros. So it's almost like a tax Uh, but not quite. So I started looking at this and thinking, you know, what if when Rauschenberg had first sold that painting or, you know, combine, uh, whatever, he had retained 10% of it so that when it sold at auction, he received 10% of the 85,000. I started doing this research proposing fractional equity as an alternative to resale royalties, because if you as an artist retain equity in your work, you own a property right, and you can have the option of then turning around and selling part of that. So it creates this possibility of market-driven patronage. This is also kind of scary. Like You don't want to securitize something like art in a way that you haven't thought through a few steps ahead. But Mm -hmm. I, I was thinking at the time it would create diversification for people interested in investing in art, and that it would be this kind of cathedral business where it would grow slowly and philanthropically for a long time as a form of patronage, but that later there would be this kind of wealth creation and that artists could band together and create funds around it so that you own fractional equity in your own work, but you also own fractional equity exposure to other people's work. So it it has an insurance piece to it where everyone experiences some of the upside. So I've done some work on this empirically, uh, collaborating with Roman Kreisel, who's a finance professor in Luxembourg. And I go into the archives and I find the sales records when work first left the gallery. And then we compare it to later auction results. So this is a very different way of doing this. Usually people look only at public auction records and they do either repeat sales where they only look at things Mm. that have sold twice or they do what's called hedonic regression where they try to fit things to a regression line and infer a price based on different characteristics of the work. And that doesn't really have anything to do with the artist. That just has to do with the artwork in the world as an object. And if you go into the archival records, there are all these stories there. Like there's, there are tons of works that don't sell twice at auction because they go to museums 
or they're still in families, or they sell privately. So it's not really an accurate snapshot. But what we found is that famous artists would um, outperform the stock market by like a thousand times in some cases. So it's like a, in the case of Jasper Johns and Robert Rauschenberg, it's 20 to 40 percent every year from like 1960 wow. to 2005. That would be an extremely impressive hedge fund return. And, and I'm not uh-huh. saying that they should do this to be capitalistic, although it's fine if they want to be capitalistic. I'm just saying that structurally, if we view the market as a design medium, price and value are not aligned. The, mm-hmm. the market is broken. And this might be a way of fixing it because in a point A world, it's easier to assign a fraction than a dollar amount. It's not accurate to assign a dollar amount if the value changes a lot over time. So I've been trying to explore whether this would serve artists and be interesting to artists. And if you had to buy the equity, so if you got paid a little bit less when you first sold the work, but it would stop anyone from being able to criticize artists. There are a couple of people who think artists are receiving welfare when they receive resale royalties, which I disagree with but I also don't want to listen to. So I've been proposing it as, yeah. a, as artists kind of paying for it. And I think that prices for art are so fungible that it's kind of academic whether you pay for it or not because the prices would probably adjust upward. But I, I like to think that these are ways of having artists engage with markets, but on their own terms with dignity and autonomy. So I don't think everyone should do this. It's not my job to have an opinion about what artists do, but I think it would be a potentially really useful tool to include artists in markets and to create the flexibility and the optionality that comes from having a property right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this idea is so interesting because I think, you know, we talk a lot about how artists can adapt these, you know, business practices and mentality to kind of better independently serve their own careers. But scaling out, you're pointing out what is really a huge problem and imbalance in the art world that artists are are left out of this equation and that they're not benefiting from the resale of their work. And I feel like this term of investment comes up a lot when we're talking about time, like investing time early on in our our studio practices. So even though this is, you know, kind of a financial term, I think I, I, I hear it used a lot amongst like friends and artists and talking about the investment that we make in ideas and in the time that we spend to our practice. So I feel like that idea is not foreign that we're, you know, investing early, hoping for a return, mm-hmm. so to speak, in terms of like, you know, building on your career. And then also investing in each other, you know, like investing in living artists, if, like there's a hashtag for it, you know, it's like supporting your artist's peers by by collecting their work early. So I think these are things that artists are already advocating for amongst themselves. But it's really interesting to take that and to think about how we can transform that into an actual form of investment that does grow over time in the way that you might be investing in the stock market. Mm -hmm. I want to really hone in and talk a little more about this because I I think some of this might feel a little bit foreign to artists listening because you are so embedded in this world of technology too and looking at these problems with this kind of bird's eye view. Um, If you could just explain a little bit further um, how something like blockchain works or just some of these um, terms that that are a part of the work Mm -hmm. that you're doing yeah and how you would translate that to to artists listening yeah sure and I you've I've gotten to write a few related academic papers recently and I'd be happy to share them if there's a way to to post them one is on art and blockchain and it includes a generalist primer and a slightly more technical primer just if anyone 
wants it. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. I've been working on a paper um, that, that comes out kind of right around now uh, with a woman named Hannah Graneman. And we were looking at, I just think this might be a way of describing it that isn't abstract. It's like really, ab- it's very like Teflon abstract to talk about. So yeah. So just jump in and like fully interrupt me if you're like, nope. That would be great. And we'll include links to these in the notes. So we've been working on this paper called Artists, Royalties, and Performers' Equity. Hannah teaches in Performing Arts Administration, and there have been a few initiatives recently for originating cast members of Broadway productions. So, for example, the originating cast of Hamilton to Mm -hmm. retain equity in the work um, or to have profit sharing. So fundamentally to have some exposure to the upside. So instead of saying, I get paid this amount of money to show up every week for rehearsals and this amount of money every week for the performance, if it does really well, you own a tiny piece of exposure to that. It's structurally like a royalty or an equity position. And the art side, in the US, we do not have resale royalties, but the European Union at least right now, including the UK, depending on when this airs, have mm-hmm. resale royalties. And there's an organization called DAX. It's like the, uh, it's an acronym that starts with the word design, but they're the copyright clearance agency in the UK. And they collect the artist resale right and distribute it. Last year, they distributed something like 18 million pounds to 58,000 artists in the UK total. And I think for comparison, the Arts Council England their program for individual artists distributed 12 million pounds. So it's a substantial scale. We were looking at whether you could come up with cooperative investment structures for artists. I, I love the way you're describing investment where like artists are inherently good at it, but the word kind of twigs a little bit because you're like, whoa, wait, who said investor? And there's a great book mm-hmm. by a sociologist named Alison Gerber called work, The Work of Art, where she interviews people about this and, and like codes their language. It's, it's actually a really beautiful, elegant, small book. I think artists are actually really good at thinking in these ways and really nimble at it, but without any of the overlay of markets and the language has a market overlay. So it's just, it's a failure of language I, I struggle with. But let's say, okay, I'm just going to jump to a small example in the paper. Apparently, this is not based on personal experience, but apparently if you are a world-class poker player and you're in Las Vegas and you make it to the finals, say there are four people at the table and you're competing for a million dollars in prize money, you tend to have an arrangement beforehand where you invest in everyone else because it's too risky to spend that much time and you get a million dollars and everyone else gets zero. So say you, if you win, you get $700,000 and then the other three people each get $100,000. So this is a kind of split, right, of, of risk sharing. So let's say that all of us are artists and we all sell works for $100 and we, we say, I'm going to retain equity and see what happens. And we together are going to form like a community investment trust where we are the fund managers. It's not like this crazy top down, like business person comes into the arts and is like, I've got a great idea for a fund, but us kind of coming together cooperatively. So we take, each of us has like the $10 every time we sell a work of art and we put them all in a fund But then we can choose. So let's say that 70% of it stays with you and 30% of it goes into a big pool. So a little bit like um, if you work in a restaurant and there's a shared tip pool so that people who are not directly waiting on tables are also included. So I think you can use a structure like this to replicate something like the Artist Pension Trust, but without the cost of storing the physical work. So what happens right now is that artists typically, you know, are told that they should 
hold back work and store it so that when they become famous later, they'll have it as if this is like an easy thing to do and storage is cheap and grows on trees or whatever, you know, uh-huh. and like I know artists who have like hideously burdensome storage costs and are having to, you know, give work away or otherwise try to resolve it. So, so I think this is a kind of interesting way of thinking about your artistic career as a kind of long-term venture, not about just the objects, but about your body of work and about the kind of larger field or community of people you make work with. You know, it may never go anywhere. It may be worth zero, but it also might go somewhere and create this kind of passive source of funding that can support you without taking hours out of your day. I mean, one of the largest questions I had out of our conversation today, which is based on all of your work, how how might you redesign the market to be in better service of <laughs> yeah. artists? And I think that you're answering that with some of these alternatives. Yeah, so I think blockchain is um, really poised to make these things possible. I think blockchain is strongly associated with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and speculative like Silicon Valley style thinking. But it actually has a really beautiful longer history, which is that the launch of Bitcoin was in 2008, early 2009. And there's a circulation of the paper in 2008, and then it was published in early 2009. And the Bitcoin white paper has eight footnotes, and three of them are to the work of these guys called um, Stuart Haber and Scott Stornetta. And they worked at Bell Labs. And their original question, like their lighthouse question, we're talking like 1989, it was um, personal computing's coming online. It's really easy to alter a digital file, how will we know what was true about the past? And how will we know what was true about the past without having to trust a central authority to keep the record? Like the way you trust your bank to keep your bank account. And they figured out if they created a database structure where there were many copies of the ledger and they were all connected, that that you could keep a trusted record without trusting a central authority. And then Satoshi Nakamoto added this kind of dynamic layer of rewarding people to keep the record by giving them a puzzle to solve. And then if they solve the puzzle, they win a Bitcoin, right? And so this is how cryptocurrency got stapled mm-hmm. onto blockchain. But blockchain is really a database structure. It's registrarial. Like it's, it's like the registrar of a museum is like the equivalent of the blockchain. So um, I think that what's interesting about blockchain is that it allows people to develop cooperative database structures that are owned by the group of people and not just by like the museum or the gallery. And they also allow us to own things fractionally and to have a trusted record where you don't have to spend a lot of time, you know, faxing contracts back and forth. Like you can go to the file, reasonably trust it and distribute small shares. So like you and I could own 0.0001% of an artwork and the blockchain could make it reasonably possible for us to share the resale royalty on it or whatever else. Now, I'm, I'm speaking a little bit theoretically because there's still a lot of transaction costs and time costs and regulatory issues and a bunch of details, but that's how the blockchain piece fits in is that the technology could, could support this and was originally designed for this. So, I mean, I think the sort of the basic overarching message is just that business does itself a disservice in the way it is explained to artists a lot of the time because it's explained like this club that you join or the secret system that you're being told like you're welcome or 
it's like this way of being in the world where you are constantly a market actor and you're not fun to talk to at parties because you're like, hey, let me tell you about my work. Press play Mm -hmm. for two minutes. And I, I think that that robs people of their humanity. But I also think that some of the response to business from artists does artists a disservice because it's not a form of engagement. And I think for me, there's an ethics to engagement. There are a lot of very successful forms of activism that are not related to the market, like the tear gas biennial writing, for example, about the Whitney or the artist taking their work out of the exhibition. Those were very effective modes of pressuring Warren Kanders to step off of the Whitney board. But I also think complementary to that, it's very interesting to try to figure out Mr. Kanders' business like how cheaply did he purchase social prestige? What percentage of his earnings come from tear gas canisters? How do you make sense of some of the history of mergers and acquisitions of his business? I'm teaching a workshop at College Art Association on financial literacy for activism, and I can't yet make sense of his financials, and I've been reading them for a while. So I think that there are these ways in which understanding economics you know, is a form of creative empowerment. And I know empowerment is also a little bit of a cheesy word. It's a form of creative self-trust. And it's also a form of being a citizen, of participating in a larger conversation beyond yourself. And I think that's so important, especially at a time when people are talking about unionizing across so many arts organizations. This idea of the power of collective action is so profound and that understanding economics is a part of that. And I think that what you said about investment is so true, that artists are actually, like the artists I know understand so much of economics backwards and forwards, just not the weird made up bits that don't apply, or they you know, they understand it in, in, on their own terms. But I think if you're judging, if you're judging economics, you're not in a place of creative flexibility. And that also inhibits your broadest range of motion in exhibiting moral courage. And I think that is certainly needed in the world right now. Yeah, that idea of empowerment came to mind for me too, because I I think that while some artists might have this resistance to the idea of merging art and capitalism and the financial end, you know, brings up a lot of feelings. I think if you think in terms of impact, the way that you're describing it, that being able to engage with this and having a, a greater understanding enables you to to have a larger seat at the table, to increase the scope and the sphere of your impact, that that can be a really powerful way of valuing this type of of merging. No, I love that. And I think that's why it feels like a sense of creative self-trust to me, because it's a trust that if you know something, you won't be overtaken by it. You will still be able to resist it if that's your choice. So I mentioned earlier before we started the call that I'm working on a book right now on economics of visual art. And one of the artists who I've been reading about is Charlotte Posaninsky. Forgive me if I'm saying her name incorrectly. I'm reading a lot about her, but I've never heard her name said. Mm. But she uh, had a show at the Dia Beacon a couple of years ago. And I came across her work in this book that Martin Herbert wrote called Tell Them I Said No, which is a story, a set of stories about artists rejecting the market and, and rejecting offers. And Charlotte Posaninsky in Germany in 1968 during the student rebellions, and she was really disillusioned with art and to her, the inability of art to affect real social change. So she stopped being an artist. She had made these very large sculptures out of the material that you would use for a heating duct for a building. Like, I'm aging myself here, but it it looks like a Rubik's snake. (laughs) Like, (laughs) you know what I'm talking about. It's like like a square tube, Uh but the corners are triangular. 
Anyway, you can look it up. <laughs> like you're, I can you picture can, it. You know it, but like if someone's listening and they're like, I don't get it, you, it's easy to look up. They're weirdly beautiful industrial objects. But what happened was she, she stopped making work and she went and trained in sociology, looking specifically at factory labor and the ways that people have ownership and a sense of collaboration as factory workers. And then in the early 80s, she became very sick with cancer, and she was talking to her then second husband, who's now the executor of her estate, and she decided that she would start reissuing the work. But what she did, and I I find this so interesting from a market standpoint, they decided that all of the work she'd made in the 60s would be called prototypes and that they could only be sold to museums, and that all of the work that she would make now was in open editions. So it can't function in an art market. It doesn't have scarcity in the same way. Mm. And it's sold as kind of cost plus. So they figure out whatever the materials cost and then add this kind of overhead for the fact that the estate has to run this operation. So you can have one and, and live with it. And, you know, maybe it's collectible. I don't know. But I just think it's really interesting that, that that's the form of political engagement with a market structure in that case. Yeah. And what I like about what you're proposing, too, is that it's coming from artists themselves. I think sometimes the idea of maybe investing in something like the stock market can feel intimidating because it feels like you're putting your your money and your you know trust um, in these kind of external forces or, you know, in these companies that you maybe don't have control over. And so I think being able to reinvest in the work that you're doing and that those around you are doing is something that a lot of that would resonate with a lot of artists. I wanted to ask a question going back to this idea of blockchain to make sure that I'm understanding correctly. Is this an oversimplification to describe it as if we're looking at banks as like the current hubs of our money, but with something like blockchain, banks wouldn't exist, and instead that ownership would be redistributed amongst all people equally, and there would be a kind of permanent timestamp on all of these transactions. Is that like an appropriate way to understand what blockchain is and maybe how it would help to democratize the way that we engage with things? Yeah, I love that. That's an amazing, really poetic way of describing it. Yeah, I, this is... Okay. A- I just want to make sure I understand because I know for Amanda and I, these yeah. terms are really foreign. Do you know the? Do you follow the work of Anand Giriharadas, who wrote this book called "Winners Take All"? That's about um, the problem of trusting no. billionaire philanthropists to it, like the sort of plutocracy. The billionaire philanthropists, it's, it's problematic to trust them to fix society because they won't want to fix it in a way that takes away from themselves. In mm. actual fact, there probably are a number of billionaires who are looking at ways that they can be more socially engaged. And then there are also organizations like TED or Aspen Ideas Festival that are sort of gatekeepers to that power structure as well. So if you look at some of the the companies in the world order that he is critiquing, he's critiquing companies like Facebook or Google that have amassed inordinate uh, wealth and power. And just to your point, what I think blockchain really does is it it takes those big, chunky, solid structures of these platform tech companies and it fundamentally pixelates them. It creates this radical flexibility where Facebook doesn't own your data, you own your data, mm-hmm. and you transact back with Facebook in mass with other people. So it opens up this possibility of investment trusts. You know, we're, we're exactly what you said. Like, it's not the bank as a hub, but all of us together are the bank. Um, and these are things people mm-hmm. have tried to do in the past with time banks or credit unions. But I think these are technologies that create good governance 
at least theoretically, I mean, the details are still being worked out, at least theoretically create good governance. And I think you're totally right. There are people who are starting blockchain companies in the arts I really admire. And there are also people who are coming in from outside from banking organizations and saying, I bought this artwork and I divided it into pieces and you can buy a share of it, which is not, you know, it's not that interesting. It's it's exactly the same as if I had a seashell collection and or a stamp collection and one of them seemed valuable and we just like divided it up. It's not connected to uh-huh. the labor of art. And most of the way that we think about investment is connected to value and value creation. So it's just value extraction. It's not value creation connected to value realization. Mm. Well, a little known fact, my brother actually studied finance and for a couple of years was, he had founded a startup that was a financial tech company aimed at eliminating the barriers to investing in the stock market. So this was something that my partner, who's a designer, and I were moonlighting on for a couple of years and part of what brought us out to the Bay Area. And the idea was that, and this exists now in a lot of investing apps, that you can um, invest in fractional shares or um, that you can, it, making, again, those stocks just a little more affordable or maybe spreading it out amongst a, a network of friends. Um, and so that was kind of the idea behind um, the company, which is no longer around. But I'm wondering for artists that are really interested in these ideas, um, you mentioned a few companies, but are there platforms like this that exist? Or how could artists today start to invest in themselves or in you know others' work in this way? I don't know of exactly this platform existing, but the place I would start is I would follow Jason Bailey on Twitter and read his blog, Art Gnome, which is a really great introduction to all things art and crypto. It skews a little bit toward AI art and tech-based art as opposed to I made a painting and we fractionalized the painting. Um, But that's probably where Mm -hmm. I would start. I haven't started a company to do this and I don't know someone who started it directly, but I would love to find a way to connect with artists and see if it's actually of interest. I've mostly been doing archival Mm -hmm. research and I would love to kind of hear, hear more people's stories or even start to collect data from people just to see what would make sense. Um, I have a colleague at NYU, Kevin McCoy, who started a company called Monograph, which does this actually. I think Monograph is probably the closest um, to this particular mm-hmm. thing. Some of, some of the big art blockchain companies would be like Artery, which just registers things. They don't currently do fractional ownership. Verisart, similar. And then um, Mycenas is the one where they buy artworks and then divide them up into shares. And then there are a couple of other companies that are in a crossover space where they have some art objects, but some things that are like collectible sneakers. So there's one called With Otis. Um, there's another called OpenSea. There are these kind of digital marketplaces. There's a super interesting question. It's it's one of those uh, blind men describing the elephant problems where you start to see pieces of it, <laughs> but you can't see like the whole the whole thing. Um, but Nicole, I love that mm-hmm. story about um, your your brother, and um, I, th- I I like that the ethos of that business idea. Yeah, thanks. I think just having a little bit of insight into this world, and I think for me as an artist, it taught me a little bit of what you were describing in the beginning, which, you know, I think going into that project, I had a lot of insecurity around what I could bring to the table, but found that 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 perspective as an artist was really valuable in conversations we were having about shaping the business. And so I think there was a lesson in that, but then also just, I think, giving me exposure, it was such a huge learning opportunity to understand a little bit of the financial end 
um, because that was not at all my background. And so I think there was a great balance there. And I learned so much throughout the process and, um, and I'm still learning. So it's, it's, you know, really interesting to hear you talk about this um, because you're you're bringing both of those perspectives from from your business background and then as an artist as well. Yeah, I think we're all always still learning, and if and if we're not, then we're in trouble. I, I get worried about yeah. people who are like, I know it all. Um, but it, it's also it's one of the great gifts of teaching yep. business to artists is like exactly what you just did. You just put that into such beautiful language, and um, I really appreciate that. I, I it reminds me of when I used to do these lunchtime talks when I was getting my MFA in painting and someone would always be like this is probably a really dumb question but and you're like it's either going to be really hard or really insightful or both <laughs> like what if you get away with all the banks and I'm like oh no I didn't really think about that so I think there's like oh that's a little heartbreaking because I think that's another instance where maybe artists are are undervaluing the extent of their creativity and imagination. And, you know, we, we can tend to, or maybe I'm speaking personally, you know, undersell ourselves and the perspective that we bring um, because these things feel unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. But really that's what we're doing every day is um, trying to ask questions and trying to bring, you know, new solutions and creative problem solving and critical thinking to these to those ideas. And so there's that beginner's mind, mm-hmm. which can be really um, powerful when you're, when you are approaching something for the first time. And um, even though there are people that have been researching and, you know, really embedded in something for a long time, there can be value in bringing in new people with other perspectives that don't have the same, yeah, that same background. Yeah, no, definitely. One of my favorite people in the art thinking book, I mean, I have no favorite children, only, you know, um, but the first story in the book is about Thomas Fogarty, who invented the balloon catheter, like when he was a teenager. And his breakthrough is based on something he learned to do while cutting school growing up. But he um, started an innovation institute. I don't think I put this in the book, but he said that um, when I was talking to him that when they're discussing something hard, they always like to have one person in the room who's not an expert in it because it completely changes the the way they talk. I'm just trying to think about why artists might feel that way. I mean, I felt that way. I think it's really hard. Like business makes it hard. Like business is like the feeling of sitting in a lecture where you have a question and you think it's a dumb question, but like half of the people in the room have the same question and maybe the teacher has the same question. It's a funny dance of vulnerability when you're making art because like in the studio, it's like you learn how to be in the moment of the work and with the work. Yeah. But then there are these places where art gets into like a a critic system and there's a lot of judgment and I think it's um, sort of like writing a book where it's very hard to be the locus of vulnerability and the locus of enthusiasm at the same time so you're trying to embrace something Mm -hmm. and like be with your insecurity about what you don't know simultaneously and I think Mm -hmm. that's a hard thing to do by yourself and a much easier thing to do in a group of people. Oh, yeah. And especially as artists in our solo practices where we spend all of our time (laughs) in our heads going through that thing where it's like, I have to be the one to believe in my work and push it forward. But I also am the one who is doubting every single thing that I do. And I don't know. I I also, segueing back a little bit, like really appreciate you coming on to talk art and business because I think that so often we assume that they exist in this Venn diagram world where the spheres don't overlap and there's a lot more overlap than we realize where business requires creativity and creativity requires business in order to feed one another and and make it work and grow and yeah I know I mean I'm constantly the second I hear business stuff my 
instinct is to shut down and think like my brain doesn't work this way I cannot process this information I need someone to dumb it down but like a lot of us are confused (laughs) and it's maybe not as hard as as it seems if we can find the right communicator to to translate that yeah yeah it's it must be sort of analogous to um like the difference between building a website with Squarespace and learning HTML and I'm not Mm-hmm. I'm not good at the first and I don't know how to do the second. Um, but like, I feel like business is sort of like an HTML thing where it's like when, once you're over the hump of what the logic is and you feel invited into it, you know, invited into the conversation, it's actually kind of interesting. Yeah. And then there's so much you can do because once you know the language, you can, you know, code anything, you can design yeah. anything. So there's so much um, creativity that can happen yeah. within that. It's funny. You're making me think about um, this time I went to give a talk in a business after Art Thinking came out and they were like, hey, Amy, we really wanted to be artistic. So is it okay if we get a bunch of Play-Doh? Can you do something with Play-Doh? I was like, sure. And I was kind of thinking like, also, you have budget. Like, this is interesting that you have budget for like, a lot of Play-Doh. <laughs> we can do yeah, better yeah. than Play-Doh. And I was like, sure, fine. No problem. And then... I mean, um, I would have suggested champagne, but whatever. Play-Doh's fine. <laughs> I know. I really have to assert myself more next time. <laughs> I like what you're doing with Play-Doh. How about I yes and and level jump that to champagne? Um, but they... Uh, they I mean, it, was, it reminded me a little bit of my brother, actually. He was, like, hyper-creative, but if you gave him Play-Doh, he would make something really precise with it. He works also works in finance. But, mm-hmm. like, this guy in the front row had this um, bright green miniature cha- Play-Doh chalice on, balancing on his leg the whole time I was talking. And what I was really thinking about was, you know, before I started speaking, they were having a town hall meeting, and they were talking about something where they'd had to respond to a crisis and organize it a response at a huge scale and it was incredibly imaginative and they'd done it really successfully, but it seemed like a logistics task to them and not like an act of creativity. And I was like, this is just so interesting. Mm -hmm. Like this gap between like, I think that is an art project. And I also feel a little bit like a trained seal that I'm here to talk about art and creativity and like get people to do stuff with Play-Doh. I think afterwards someone's like, yeah, I wish you'd done a little bit more of the Play-Doh. It was great. But I was like, you know, It sounds like some of this disconnect might also exist on the business side because what is actually very, our very creative acts isn't being described in that way. So again, it's this failure of language where the way that maybe they're talking about problem solving and and doing all of these things that, that artists would describe in a very different way, that there's also a, a lapse there and maybe yeah. they're not um, valuing the level of creativity that's actually involved. Yeah, totally. It's like it's like all of us need to be forced into the proverbial station wagon for the long road trip so that we can have a conversation and <laughs> and uh, develop some mutual understanding. But it is funny. I, I think sometimes I've felt judged by artists for doing that work with business people as if I've somehow like extracted secrets, you know, like shared the secret recipes or something like that. And I, I don't feel that way. I feel like everyone is um, inherently creative and that all of us are engaged in integrating our practical and creative and even spiritual selves. And um, that there's there are these social constructs that make it hard to do that that make it hard for business people to to feel like everybody feels imposter syndrome. You know, like business people feel kind of out of touch with their creative selves. And maybe that's also a form of anxiety of having to meet the business case and not feeling that kind of like lateral space. And I, I think there's some bridges. Like I think curiosity is a bridge. And I think self-trust or enoughness is a bridge. 
Like I, th- I think there's also a lot of anxiety around business on the art side. And, you know, I'm not fully practicing as an artist right now, but as a junior academic, non-traditionally later in life, like I completely relate to economic precarity. I also, like, you know, supported myself in some, some um, sturdy and some haphazard ways for many years to, to develop some of the work. So I feel like, you know, I, I have a relationship to these topics. And, you know, I think there are also ways of like asking very hard questions about how we design the world. And I think they're, they're actually policy questions, you know, like they're universal basic income questions and taxation and political contribution, Citizens United. I think all these things are actually part of the art project of how we develop systems where everyone can feel like a sense of ease and thriving and just like that little bit of space that makes you not feel boxed in. I would be surprised if there weren't lots and lots of people who feel that way right now in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Debbie Donner. I feel it. <laughs> <laughs> no, we we all grapple with that self doubt, and it's hard. No matter how much experience you have in a field or how much time you spent doing it, it's hard to ever feel like you have enough experience to be an expert on it. Or like, there's there's always room for new knowledge, updated information, a broader spectrum. I, I think that imposter idea is something that we feel yeah. pretty consistently no, across the I board know. I, or so i've read <laughs> but i think also <laughs> or so yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're not we're on the street yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we I'm all feel like a bunch of phonies yeah it's like how do you see your doubt as a reflection of the rigor of your skepticism and how do you see your skepticism as a gift of your creativity Oh, that was really well put. I think what's been exciting to see throughout even how this conversation has unfolded is that you you seem to really embody this idea of inventing point B. And it seems like so much of our conversation has revolved around these questions, um, a lot of which don't already have answers, but that maybe this is the artist's perspective coming into your work where you're starting from this place of inquiry and there seems to be a real open-mindedness to to discovery and to different ideas and possibilities. And I think that taking that spirit with us into whatever problem we're trying to solve is a really beautiful way of looking at it, where we're not fixed on any one answer, but really starting with the, the question, um, which is at the heart of it. Yeah, I love that. So, yeah, I really appreciate that about the way that you talk about your work. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. I I, I have the same feelings of um, self-doubt, and um, I sometimes have imposter syndrome that is reinforced by external circumstance. I don't, I don't know if I'm really supposed to tell this story. And also, the book has been accepted on proposal, but I still have to have a manuscript approved. But the Economics of Visual Art book is under contract with Cambridge um, University Press. I have an amazing editor. I'm really excited. But you know, you're starting to write a book, and everything looks messy when you're starting out. So that's the imposter syndrome piece. And you're also trying to write a book that's readable, Mm -hmm. but that also passes academic peer review. And so there are people who think if you don't cite, you have to cite everything, but if you don't make it look jargony Mm -hmm. and dense on the page um, or obtuse, maybe you don't know enough. I visited my editor and he's like, oh, Amy, you're interested in uh, art and museums. Look, we have a museum. And he shows me this correspondence I mean, it was amazing. It was this correspondence from Isaac Newton asking for higher royalties. And I was like, you know, insert expletive here. I share a publisher <laughs> with Isaac Newton. And then he's like, by the way, I think you met my colleague in reception. He mistook you for someone here to interview for a temporary six-month admin job. And I was like, you know, it's like, it's a funny thing because... 
it's hard for me to put words to like that being problematic without it sounding like I'm not respectful of someone taking a six month admin job. Like I've, I used to have a job like that. I might have a job like that again. There's dignity in all work. I don't, I don't mean it that way, but there's a, a time and a place in which you're just sort of like, man, I wish I didn't look like I was about to host a Southern bridal shower. <laughs> like I wish I looked like someone who, like a lady who wrote economics books without having to radically change my personality or my love of floral prints. So I, I think it's like, I think, you know, some of these things are kind of like complicated <laughs> and funny and like, they're fine. Like they yeah. lodge in your brain, like, and kind of hit replay on themselves. And you're like, I sense some sort of like structure gender situation in the world at large and oh wait it might exist <laughs> like, yeah uh, right. that, maybe that that's like thing. a stealthy superpower though <laughs> it's like being underestimated can be yeah you know like spy, really. you're just I think it's a good it's yeah a good it's one of profile. those chameleon yeah. moments yeah I, I just like feel like there's so many artists who are doing amazing inspiring work and give me and all of us the gift of witnessing a kind of presence and openness and traction with the universe. And, and I want for anyone listening to this to feel supported in that in community, in economic structure, in, in all ways. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Amy. We so appreciate this conversation. If people want to follow your work, you've mentioned already some of the things that you're working on, but where else can they <laughs> follow you online and find out about what you're doing? I'm, I'm on Twitter. I'm at the Amy Witt. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. If you write me on LinkedIn, just like say how you met me. And academics are easy to find. You know, my contact details are probably on the website. We'll just Google you. Yeah, but keep keep an eye out for um, the Economics of Art book. I would really love for that to be like in conversation with people in the field and be useful to people. And then in terms of the stuff that we've talked about, the two things I would recommend are um, I wrote an essay for Hyperallergic in 2016 called Why Teach Business to Artists? which is mm -hmm. about the sort of like how business presents itself and how it can be a creative design medium. And then um, I was invited to give a TEDx talk at TEDx Foggy Bottom, I think last year, that's about the um, fractional equity and art stuff. And it's just like a 10 minute version of that might be interesting. Yeah, we can share that with our show notes. We have a book club that we do with the podcast where we talk about art books and we'd love oh, to talk amazing. art books yeah. with you. Yeah. Um, and if I see other cool books come across in the meantime, I'll, I'll try to suggest them. Um, no, that's oh, great. Yeah. I, uh, I feel very encouraged by our conversation by getting to meet you both. Oh, thank you. Likewise. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. And I'm, I don't even feel sick anymore. <laughs> Amanda's miraculously cured from her cold. Yep. Thanks to this conversation. <laughs> That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. No, it's okay. I was um, I was dog sitting my brother's puppy, and I kind of gave a warning at the beginning of the podcast recording that he might bark occasionally, but you know I would just mute myself and we cut it out. And then at one point, he actually had an accident on the floor while we were <laughs> talking, so he's. He's pooping in the corner and I'm trying to, you know, stay in the game and it was <laughs> yeah. yeah, people don't understand um. the wild world of podcasting. <laughs> Anything can happen.